You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Beth Watkins. Hello. Also with us this week is Mr. Todd Statham. Hi. This week we are talking about the 1975 film from director Ramesh Sippy, Shole. The film tells the tale of Thakar Baldev Singh, a policeman whose family is slaughtered by a criminal he apprehended, Gabar Singh. Thakar employs the aid of a pair of noble criminals, Viru and Jai, who take on Gabar and his gang. The film makes a lot of nods to Kurosawa and Leone while presenting the proceedings only as Bollywood can. Todd, when was the first time you saw Cholet and what did you think? I think I first saw Cholet in about 2003. And it was pretty early in my Bollywood watching career. I had watched some Bollywood movies, and it was among the first movies from the 70s. It was one of those movies that sort of sent me on the slippery slope into obsession with 1970s Bollywood movies. Yeah, likewise. I, Todd and I are in the same kind of pit of madness when it comes to 70s <laughs> Hindi movies. I think I saw this one only just about a few months ago when we decided to do this episode. I had picked up Todd's book and was going through there, and I have a a shelf of Bollywood films that I have yet to get into, and Sholay was definitely amongst those, and I just had heard for years that this was the film that you need to see. Yeah, it's kind of hard to avoid those references to it. I kind of, in my book, I I just, you know, I think the first time I referred to it, which you may have heard, all caps, is the most beloved Bollywood film of all time. (laughs) You know, so it's it's hard to evade that. So this was a very new experience for me uh, going into this one. And I have seen just a handful of Bollywood films. And, you know, they kind of all have these stereotypes of, oh, there's so much singing and dancing and maybe inappropriate at times to the plot. You know, they just kind of wedge some songs in here. And, and I was really impressed by Cholet, just the way that the music worked with the film, that we only have, what, like five major song breaks throughout the movie and one of them, the one at the end, works so well with the plot of the film that it was just terrific. Okay, be honest, Mike. Did you cry? I don't think I cried at all, but I only figured out some of the twists like a few minutes before they happened sometimes. So I was very, very happy about that, that I wasn't being telegraphed this entire film within the first 15 minutes. I cried again. Where do you cry at? Well, I don't want to spoil it, but during the, you know, during the, 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 the finale, you know what? 
or or the the pen or I guess it's not the finale. It's the whatever the the penultimate. Oh, you're talking about like the bridge scene? Yes, that's oh, the one. Yeah, what a yeah. tearjerker! Gets that is. me every time. Every time, Cholet is the rare Bollywood movie. You know, there's this idea of the masala film where it's just you know something for everybody, everything but the kitchen sink, comedy, drama, action, blah blah blah. A lot of times they don't gel together too well. Um, Cholet is. Except for a few no- notable exceptions, most of the elements, uh, it's one of the rare ones where all the elements come together, uh, really, really nicely. There's a, several reasons for that, but it was just a God smiled upon it, I guess is, uh, what you could say. Well, I wasn't sure at first if it was going to gel because we started off. It feels like a Western, you know, we've got the train station and we've got this guy going to visit this other guy, the, the Thakur. And there's this whole thing, like, I need these two criminals for a mission. And I was just like, Ooh, this, maybe this is going to be like the dirty dozen or something. Then we get to see why he wants these guys for this mission. And there's this amazing set piece, this fantastic chase on a train that is just wonderful. I just thought this was one of the best action set pieces I had seen in a long darn time. And I was right there on the edge of my seat cheering and everything. And I was just like, the whole time I'm watching this movie, I just kept thinking, man, I wish I was seeing this in the theater. I would love to see this on the big screen. And then we kind of like get, okay, well, these guys are criminals. And, you know, as soon as we find them, we'll send them your way and everything. But we don't know where they're at just now because if they're not in jail, then they could be any place. And then the movie just takes this weird right turn for like the longest time. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> and I know. That's when mean. it becomes the moment where I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to really like this or not. Okay. I think this movie's hard for me to get into. And it's exactly for that reason because there's such a long chunk at the beginning after you've had the amazing train which is so great and then i'm immediately disappointed by these extended and to me odious comic Uh, things that i I, just can't get into and it's too front-loaded that way so then you have to for viewers like me have to recover and i know viewers like me are not who this was made for but (laughs) it's rough yeah i have this fantasy of like making my own version of chalet Editing out that entire jail sequence. I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? The uh, scene yeah. with Asrani is the Hitler-esque uh, jail yeah. warden. That, yeah, that is so digressive. And it just seems like a cruel joke, especially when you find out how cool the rest of the movie after that is. It just seems like a needless delay. I mean, the only reason I can see for it to exist is that the constant references as Ronnie makes to being, you know, from back in the British days. And it seemed like maybe it was a way for uh, Jai and Viru to, you know, kick butt on the... um the Raj, you know, to, to get in a, to get in a, a dig at the Raj, but it's horrible. And I kept thinking like, well, maybe that guy will come back at some point like that, the jailer character. And then the Suma Bopopki character, the kind of like bug eyed criminal guy the that they saw of the comic relief guys. Yeah, to me. Yeah. I hate that actor. <laughs> or I hate uh, Jag, Jag deep. Yeah. I hate him too. 
so I'm like, okay, well, there had to be a reason why these guys were in here. Yeah. Like, I was thinking, like, okay, well, later on in the film, we have this, you know, really tense scene of Gabar and the Thukar, Thakar and, um, you know, sending uh, Gabar to jail. And then he almost immediately escapes. And I was just like, well, no wonder this guy escapes if he's got this kind of jailer. <laughs> right, right. And I thought, well, maybe they'll show that guy again and be like, I don't know how this guy escaped. How could it be? You know, but no. And I would warn you when approaching other Bollywood films of this period, they all have almost all of them have some kind of odious comic relief, you know, but, but this a is lot of times worst of them. I would say this is. is the longest, least relevant, yes. most bizarre. Yeah. In an otherwise artfully made film for the most part. I was kind of reminded of like some of the you know Hong Kong uh, Chapsaki films where there's usually some comic relief going in there. With those, you're running like what ninety minutes. So with this one, it's over. It's three hours and twenty four minutes is the cut that I saw. So it was just like the jailer scene can go on for twenty solid minutes, maybe. Yeah, I think so. It feels that way at least twenty <laughs> emotional minutes at least. Sholay is not a perfect film. Yeah, and I think its major flaw is definitely that sequence. Yeah, I mean, when I first saw it, I was like, "What the hell?" When that was going on, <laughs> and the other and the other thing that gave me a lot of pause is the sequence, which is a beat for beat lift of the scene from uh, "Once Upon a Time in the West," where the massacre of the McBain family. That sort of gave me some pauses. As I've I've seen the film so many times, and as I've over time, that's bothered me less. Less, but it's still sort of a I have sort of a moral dilemma with that. It may be intended as an homage, but it is like a you know a beat for beat copy of that scene from start to finish. So it's very well done. It fits into the film, and it's very powerful. But it's a rip off, so that that always bothered me. But it's, you know, it doesn't bother me as much now, maybe because I'm an awful person, but... Well, I got a lot of Once Upon a Time in the West from that scene, of course. Also from, um, I think it's uh, Jai, who's always playing the harmonica. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'm picking that up a little too. And then even the beginning at the train station, I was thinking, I guess if you start any movie at a train station, I immediately think of Once Upon a Time in the West. But more, I thought of the Magnificent Seven and Seven Samurai. Though it was only the two guys instead of seven of them, which was effective for me. And I think it made it even more powerful that once we get into the story, once we get past this odious comic relief, as as it was so eloquently put, then we get the real meat of the story. I think that starts about 40 minutes into the film, where we go back to the Thakar and we go back to why he needs these two guys and this whole thing of here's this criminal that's out there, this Gabar Singh, and I need him caught. I need him brought to me alive. And we find out that when his men ride into town and they immediately start asking all the farmers that live in this town for their grain and everything, I was just like, okay, yeah, now it's really becoming evident what I'm seeing. This is very Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven-esque. And then when we get to meet Gabar Singh finally, which is, we got to be almost an hour into the proceedings 
great, great revelation, though, of a character to just talk about him and then finally show this guy and to show how evil he is in that first scene. Oh, and just that whole thing where he's kind of playing Russian roulette with these three guys that have been humiliated. And when he manages to not kill them in this game of Russian roulette and that whole scene of them all laughing about it and ending that joke with that deadly punch. I mean, very, you know, Tarantino esque, I would have to say (laughs) just, you know, so many years before Tarantino, such a great way to just really drive home that you're not dealing with a typical villain. Yeah. Gavar Singh is definitely one of the greatest villains of Indian cinema. I, I also want to say another film that I think it's another Western. I think it's similar to is Rio Bravo a little bit because the pacing of it. And I think that that very deliberate sort of slow pacing and the building of tension and the use of space and silence that Sippy uses is very similar to that film too. And I think in that particular sequence, I mean, um, Amjad Khan's performance is like sort of a, he uses silence a lot because he's, you know, he'll start off sort of speaking in this lilting tone and then all of a sudden he'll explode into this volcanic rage, you know, and then someone gets killed. And I have to say, just kind of looking at the way that these characters are, you because know, I, I keep going back to like Westerns. But then it's very interesting to me that, yes, the the people in the town, you could mistake so much of this as being a Western. There's a lot of horse riding going on. There's a lot of, you know, the, the people aren't wearing cowboy hats necessarily, but the people in the town, the villagers, are wearing those kind of nondescript, you know, it could be the 1800s, it could be 1975. You don't really know where you're at. But then when you look at Gabber Singh, in his army fatigue type outfit, and you look at Jaya Varu in their very 1970s denim action slacks kind of outfits, it's very interesting to me this whole dichotomy of city versus country, and especially having the Thacker who was a city person, you know, moved from the country to the city. And those few times where he's talking about that, this whole idea of like having to go back to the country and kind of like, you know, ply people with gifts and things like that. And this kind of like owing things to the old country. I I love that whole dichotomy there between these worlds. And Bollywood loves that. That happens all the time. That's one of the unique things about the Bollywood approach to Westerns because Sholay is a Western, but it's definitely set in the, the then present day. And Viru and Jai are definitely presented as these hardened city thugs. And, the, and a recurring theme in these movies is in America and in Hollywood, we love the idea of the loner, you know, the guy who sort of has no connections to anybody and just sort of, you know, sprung into the world of a piece as this leather jacket clad badass or whatever he is, you know, someone like he's someone like, you know, the man with no name and in, in Bollywood, it's more about connection and family is so important to building characters. So when you introduce a character like these, they're almost inevitably going to be introduced into this country setting. And as these characters are, they're going to warm to it they're going to make connections with people. In this case, they both fall in love with women in the village. They're made better people through their connection to the 
to the people, to the community and the land. Um, and they even they even say that's where they want to settle down and they're going to be farmers. Right. And then, yeah, there's that great line where uh, Viru says, but we don't know how to farm. We only know how to shoot. And Jai says, our vices taught us to wield guns. Our virtues will teach us this, which just kind of sums that up nicely. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask you guys, not being familiar with Bollywood film and moreover, not that familiar with Indian culture. One thing that comes up twice in the movie, so obviously I'm picking up on it as being something significant, is this whole idea of the festival of colors. And we get that in the village and it's kind of like this really happy time and we have another song at this point. And then later on we get a flashback with the Thakar going you know, to meet basically – Somebody who's going to be his daughter-in-law at some point, but that doesn't necessarily work out. And there's the Festival of Colors there as well. What can you guys tell me about that? Is there some sort of significance to the Festival of Colors? Definitely. It's a springtime holiday. It's called Holi, and it, it is celebrated by you know throwing or spraying colored water on people that you see in the movie. And, of course, filmmakers love it because it's pretty. And it's a it's also a, an occasion where, you know, certain certain populations take it as an excuse to get high and run around and behave badly. So you get that <laughs> you get that plot can also happen where like, oh, it's a happy song full of colors and then on a dime it'll turn and you see the heroine's sister is being groped by horrible guys and an action sequence breaks out or something. Mm-hmm. And of course they do do that in Shole that it ends you know, the first time we see Holy, it, it ends in massacre. That, and that the idea there of the, you know, the colors of springtime and renewal and fun and beauty are immediately placed with the red of blood and the dust of the yeah. ground and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and apparently Holy is celebrated in some other Asian countries, too. I know I know uh, Thailand has a very similar festival, except they just do away with the color and they just all throw water on each other for like a, two solid days, I think. I love that that attack, that first Festival of Colors, which then immediately turns bad, that that is also one of the introductions to another flashback. And these flashbacks, I think that the the pacing of the film, other than that comic relief we talked about at the beginning, the pacing is so well done and that the way that they dole out information throughout the movie is so well done. And I could tell, like, talking about, like, you know, oh, well, you know, I didn't know the whole movie going in or within the first 15 minutes or whatever. Once I see the Thacker enough times, I'm like, okay, there's something going on with him, but I'm not entirely sure. And that flashback right there, when they're, like, throw the, you know, there's the gun down at his feet and and he hasn't picked it up and which is all done without speaking too oh yes right it's all done with looks and i you know i've been to india several times and like watching people communicate without words is that's definitely indian indians do that Mm. (laughs) and so the you know reading that interaction when it's wordless especially i think is just so powerful one of the things i i I really like about this film is the use of silence which you don't always see in in Indian films from this period and also how it uses sort of that expanded mode of storytelling that Bollywood movies use but instead of filling it up with a bunch of business like there's no separated twins in this movie no one turns out to be someone's dad by surprise 
they don't have all the subplots. So what they use that space for is to, it's a very simple story and they just let it breathe, you know, and they have time for these contemplative silences and these very tense silence. But the best moments in the film, I think, are, are generally the ones where there's no dialogue at all. I've talked about the use of the music and the songs and everything and how we have these five breaks for songs, but in between the songs, we have this amazing score and that works really well to fill those silences and enhance the feelings as well. And it almost sounds like they're using kind of a, an early version of like the water harp or something on here. It just gives it that strange metallic screeching kind of thing. Oh, we all read the same book, I think, about yes. <laughs> about this film and reading about how they made that instrument was really interesting. It's that same kind of noise that you hear all the time in the like reality shows when something is going <laughs> bad for the uh, contestants, which, you know, Mark Burnett, I think, owns that sound uh, now. <laughs> well, maybe I, I, I was thinking of something else, but there's a sound. It occurs during the most tense scenes. And what I thought it was, like in the scene of the massacre of the family, there's the swing that's going back and forth, and it's making this, you know, squealing sound. And the sound that recurs, it almost sounds like a sample of that. And it occurs during the final confrontation, um, and it's very eerie. It kind of sounds like there's a sound like it in the in the video in the ring, too. It reminded me of that. There's a little sort of insectile noise that happens yeah that swinging bench is so effective during that scene and yeah that is so leone-esque i feel like there's certain things about the music and you know that swing sound and a few of the other sounds that that again get at that sense of you don't you could very easily forget what year it is i like that it adds to the sort of mythic level or the epic level of the story and there are so many just wonderfully framed shots. I mean, the them going across the sun at one point when they're, oh man, just beautiful, beautiful stuff. Well, this was the first uh, Indian movie made in 70 millimeter. So that, I mean, it's, it's always exciting to see like a film industry, like stretching its limbs into new territory and experimenting with new technology. And so this was a case of that where they were working within the 70 millimeter frame for the first time. And you can see the camera flowing and the camera's constantly in motion and all the really exciting compositions, um, you know, and I think that has something to do with it. The cinematographer was a guy named Dwarker Devecha. I'm I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. Beth, you feel free to correct me, but uh, pretty amazing cinematographer. It's kind of bizarre, man. Like to have a 70 millimeter western with an intermission in the middle of it. I would never think anything like that would happen today. Bringing up the intermission makes me want to say something about Cholet that I think is um, speaks to some of what's great about it, which is that. So those of us who watch a lot of Hindi films talk about the curse of the second half because so mm. often after the interval, stuff really starts to slide in terms of like it's not as interesting. It's like it's not as well made. I don't know what happens, but it just so often these stories start to kind of go off the rails or unravel after the interval. This is the opposite. It gets better and better and better. And I yeah. love when a movie can do that. 
Yeah, for a movie that's almost three and a half hours long, I was not bored one time during this whole thing. I'm not looking at my watch other than to see, you know, I was just noting when the songs were to see if there was a pattern or anything. But otherwise, I was just like, wow, this is really chugging along here. Even when it came to, like, what could have been embarrassing or bad, the whole idea of the courtship and the one guy going to speak for the other guy. But I thought that was so well done and so clever. Oh, it's so emotional, yeah, thought, too. Yeah, there's yeah, there's three scenes, one after another, that, uh, that are comedic and that actually work really well. I love the scene of Viru... Um, you know, impersonating the idol and trying to that's, convince. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I, that's hilarious. And then you have the scene with uh, Amitabh stating Darmendra's case to Basanti's aunt and sort of doing it very half-heartedly. And then the suicide scene, which is hysterical, and all the villagers down, like not really knowing what the hell is going on, and like, wait, <laughs> what are you doing? What is this? Those are great. You know, that's enough comedy. That's why we don't need that thing, that bit at the beginning. Yeah, drunk Darmendra is plenty funny. Yeah, Darmendra can be a, a really great actor. I think he really shines in this movie. I was really impressed with Basanti, the character. Just She starts off as so annoying with just her constant prattle and everything, but it just worked for me. And then when she shows up during the big, you know, the first big fight and everything with Gabar's gang coming into town and everything, when she picks them up in her wagon and they've got the guns in there, I was just like, fuck yeah, this is awesome. I was so (laughs) glad to see such a kick-ass heroine in this film and she does not give up whatsoever. Like, later on in the film when she's being chased by those guys, she just is so determined to the point where one of the wagon wheels falls off of her thing and she's still going. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, keep going, girl. This is awesome. I don't love her the way I love a lot of the 70s heroines. And I think Mm -hmm. that 70s Hindi films is probably the peak era for great female characters, Yeah, I would say. And she, to me, is not nearly as great as some of the others. But she she stands out in this movie so much simply because there are only two other women in the movie. One of them Mm -hmm. is, you know, old and therefore not important. (laughs) Doesn't get to do very much. And the other is mute for, you know, out of whatever else and social conventions and things like that. So I feel like if I put Basanti anywhere else, I think I'd find her irritating, but I do really right. enjoy her. And the fact that she claims, I think this is in the book that we were talking about, that she she has a male job. That's very weird. Right. You know, the fact that she is she's so independent that she literally is running the roads by herself, taking fares, probably deciding whether or not she even wants a customer. Like she's she's really powerful in a lot of ways that are really interesting. If I have one complaint about the film, it's that I don't really buy the romance between is it Jai and Radha just because she is so silent and other than those longing looks that we get. And those are some powerful scenes where he's playing the harmonica and she's turning off the lamps and everything. That works, but it feels like there's just something a little missing from that to me. And I kind of wish there had been more. But maybe, again, it's the social conventions where I'm not getting that. Well, and he's also super quiet. True. So I think that that they work – she works with him, but – I mean, you couldn't you couldn't remotely put her with Viru. Like That'd be Viru ridiculous. Is, Viru is the more garrulous of the pair of Viru and Jai, so it makes sense that he'd be with 
you know, chatty Basanti. Yeah. But yeah, I, I understand what you're you're saying. But I do. I love the the lantern scene. Yeah, that's really um, lovely. Those are. I think those are some of the most romantic scenes in any Bollywood movie I've seen. Actually, I, I wanted to say another thing about Hema. Uh, Hema Malini. Sippy's film immediately prior to Sholay was a movie called Sita Argita, which came out in 1972 and which was a huge hit. So a lot of the cast and crew and talent from that film just came right over from Sholay. Hema Malini was the star. Darmendra was in it. And it was a film, it was a, another action film in which Hema Malini had a very a very kick-ass role in that too. So maybe that fed into her character in this film, but, uh, you know, same writers, same, same musical score, another good film, not as good as Cholet, but a very entertaining film. You know, I, I really like, um, some good violence in my movies. So seeing how evil Gabar Singh was and, you know, and I'm not just talking about like, you know, removing limbs or anything, but just how much he enjoyed being bad, killing the, the Iman's son and everything. Oh man. The Iman character was very interesting to me too. Just looking at coming at this from more of a cultural anthropology type of role where I'm just like, Oh, okay, that's interesting. The, the you know, we have all of these, uh, like Hindi people, but then we have the Muslim guy there and how does this religion interact with each other? And I, I found that to be very interesting. And I like this Imam character and this whole, like, and I, I, kept waiting for this story to pay off like this whole thing where the iman has this son and the iman's got what is it like a, a nephew or somebody in the big city and he works at the cigarette factory and he can get a job for the iman's son so come on son you should move over there and everybody's encouraging everybody is encouraging especially chatty basanti is is right there and then when he finally leaves and it just becomes this tragedy and that scene of the son's body coming back into town and everything and the way the Iman reacts, that's another place where if you had been tearing up, Todd, I could definitely empathize with I understand. I know that there, a lot was uh, censored from the film. A lot of the violence was censored. And I understand there's a version where they actually show the killing of the imam's son. I don't think I've seen that in the version I saw Gabar Singh squashes an ant and then they yeah. cut to, yeah. It's interesting because I've only seen the uncensored version. I had to go out and find the censored one and then read about the censored one. So it will definitely talk about the different versions and stuff and about some of the, some of the oddities with the subtitles. Oh yeah. <laughs> some of the stuff too. My goodness. One thing, though, that I did want to talk about when it comes to Gabar is that I found it very interesting that it seems like his two main henchmen seemed to be, and it looked like, a white guy and a black guy. But I couldn't really tell. Were these guys Indian or were they? Uh, yeah, they're Indian. They're Indian, but okay, because they looked like they're from other races. Yeah, so to be dark-skinned in in Hindi films, uh, unfortunately, is usually to be ugly or bad. The one guy I was looking at looked like he was way beyond Indian black. He looked like Wesley Snipes black or something. Really? Well, they, I don't remember I mean, in the that. Book, she, she talks about they they couldn't mm. they couldn't get his makeup dark enough with just makeup, and the name of the makeup <laughs> is something 
really hideous like negro black number five or something and so they actually mixed in i forget if it was soot or something but yeah no bollywood bollywood goes way overboard on blackface a lot and it um i mean to me it was on as i was learning about these it was on par with the hitler comedy for what the fuck moments yeah Yeah. (laughs) because it just isn't the it's not the same context that we have obviously, but it, it is so right. shocking at right. first. And, you know, and this is a country where fairness creams that in theory turn your skin white, you know, sell yeah. well and movie stars advertise them and stuff like that. So it's it's super racist. <laughs> That's what I, th- I thought it was interesting that the first, the original choice for uh, Jai was Shaturgan Sinha because, uh, but Amitabh campaigned hard for the role and got it. Because uh, I think that one thing that Amitabh and Shatrigan have, have in common is they look very ethnic. They're not, they don't look like a Rajesh Khanna or those really Anglo looking stars. You know, I think they're both very Indian looking. Well, that is definitely one thing that I've picked up watching just the few Bollywood films that I have is that when it comes to it, especially the female characters, it seems like I don't see very many even medium brown faces. It just seems like the whiter the better with some of these ladies. My understanding is that's pretty true as you move into further southern Indian film industries. People from that part of India are darker skinned typically. So people are darker than some of the Hindi stars, but still the women are usually fairer than the men because, you know, beauty standards mm-hmm. and, uh, and villains are darker than heroes. Yeah. And uh, I mean, if you want, if you want to see a Western, an Indian Western with people in cowboy hats, Todd and I can set you up with some of those and you will oh, you know, yeah. see the differences in skin tones and things like that, which is, you know, we should probably stop talking about that immediately because we're going to say something really ignorant, but that is, right, right, you, exactly. can a, you can read a lot about it and it is danger, danger. and interesting. Yeah. yeah. Thing that is, you know, pretty familiar to us as Americans, but playing out in a different way. Oh, and by the way, the, I don't know the other, his other right hand man, the guy who he keeps going, Hey, Samba, tell him how much, you know, the, you know, the reward is for my capture. That guy with the long hair and the, the beardy guy, that guy's That's name is Mac Mohan. Yeah. And he play, he stars as, I don't know if he's ever played anything but a henchman of a villain, but he's in a lot of movies and henchman roles. That kind of brings me to the whole idea of the one dance number and song number that just is so effective when we get Mac Mohan and holding the gun on Basanti as she does this kind of like, as soon as uh, you stop uh, singing or dancing, that's when this guy is going to shoot your beloved. Oh my God, that was the moment for me where I was just like, this is fantastic because it really felt like the singing and dancing had a real place because like I said before, sometimes it's just like, where is this coming from? But there are moments like the, the festival of colors that made sense to have a song there. Even the bit on the motorcycle, I was like, okay, yeah, this works. And the kind of courtship song with uh, Basanti and, and Veru and everything. I was just like, okay, yeah, this, this all works. But that moment when he is holding her gunpoint, basically, to sing and dance. And when they start throwing the bottles and she has to dance on the broken glass. Oh, yeah. Especially when it because it follows on. Right. It follows pretty closely on the threat of gang rape. Yes. 
which uh, it so it never there's not been enough time to lose that angle of the menace either. This is one of these things that Sholay does that I don't know if I've really seen other films that have this. Have you taught where that where a heroine has to We've seen heroines entertain the villain so that somebody can do something in the background while he's distracted. Right. But this particular thing, once you realize it, you're like, yeah, why don't I see that more often? Because it's never a problem to put a song in wherever you want. So why don't we see more songs used this way? But I don't, I don't know that I have seen it elsewhere. I think you're right. I don't think I've seen that either. It's pretty, it's pretty unique and pretty great. At first, I thought maybe she was going to be trying to signal to him, like, how many guys there are, or pass him a gun, or... That does often happen. I kept thinking that, and I was very surprised when it didn't turn out that way, and I was very pleasantly surprised. This isn't really the same thing, but I do think of my favorite scene in uh, uh, Gita Miranam, where uh, Sadhana is, like trapped in the villain's lair and he starts whipping her and she's singing she's kind of like staggering around being whipped and singing this song and it's sort of the same mood as she's singing this very sort of fatalistic resigned mournful number as she's being whipped by the bad guys and it's just and she has that same sort of tortured demeanor that Hema has in that scene and apparently Sippy insisted on filming that on the hottest day possible so that she would actually be uncomfortably hot during it. That song is also pretty great in terms of cementing to us what she feels about him because, you know, he's, he's just stood her up. And because he stood her up, she's almost gang raped. And she's also, this is, isn't this also after he's pretended to be the god at the temple and she's mad yes. at him about that so we don't yes. really know i mean we know they'll get together because we know how bollywood works but she's not clearly in love with him yet i think or at least not going to act on it particularly and now and now we know was your version of this subtitled with the songs not the one i watched today but i have seen such things Okay, because that was one thing that was really missing from mine was subtitles for songs that and i was like all the time and it's really annoying yeah yeah. I yesterday started watching the film using my copy of the DVD and it being, you know, Indian DVDs aren't always the best technical quality. And about an hour in, it froze and my TV literally started screaming. It just <laughs> let out this really <coughs> this prolonged beep. And so... <laughs> Uh, so I went to my local video store, which has Cholet, because I donated a bunch of Bollywood movies to them last year, and uh, I rented that. And that my copy did not have subtitles, but um, that one did. So I got to see the last few songs with subtitles. I that one I'm I don't really remember the uh, lyrics. I know it's called Han Job Tak. Hain John. Do you have know any have any idea, Beth, what that means? It's the while I draw breath, you will be alive. Okay. Yeah, it um, says that. And it is so. it is the name of a recent and not very good uh, blockbuster starring Shara Khan. You know, we talked a little bit about the violence and about the differences between these films. So the version I don't don't really even though to your point, uh, Beth, that this film is 
how uh, this film's what 40 years 40, old yeah. now i still don't want to necessarily spoil some things yeah. for folks because <laughs> i do definitely want them to check this out but i want to say that i found it very interesting that the whole end of the film is different depending on what version of it you see we talked about the whole idea of the imam's son and that there's a little bit more as far as violence goes and i think there's a couple other scenes here and there that have some some violence to them that are caught but this end of the film that they had to completely reshoot it and i found it very interesting todd did you you had recommended uh the book sholay the making of a classic by anupama chopra so i'll just say that all of a sudden, police are interjected into the film, and the filmmakers had a really good point that police really aren't seen that much during the film, other than our main character. And when they are seen, a lot of times, they're not necessarily the most competent people. No, no. yeah. So them showing up, and especially showing up at this remote village where we haven't seen any police enforcement whatsoever – is really kind of a stretch. Yeah, and then the and then the cop lectures the Thacker about, you know, the importance of letting the law, you know, handle it rather than have you lost your respect for the law or whatever. So it sounded like that was the censor writing the dialogue kind of. Right. You know. Well, it, it's I really wonder if it had not been the political situation in India that it was at the time, would they have let that part go? Because like I just saw the originally intended ending for the first time the other day and I was so moved by it because to me the ending that got released is it's a little bit on the money python side <laughs> at times and yes it's so much more moving and thought provoking and all those things the way they intended it and you know to see it finally I just thought I'm I'm furious on their behalf 40 years later I can't believe you know, they had to to make these changes that made it, in my opinion, a much worse movie. Does the original, I don't think I've seen the original ending. Does it not have the Thacker foot stomping whole, the whole thing with it the does. Thacker kicking? It does. But, okay. But the police don't arrive. No cops. And it's a much more morally ambiguous ending, uh-huh. which is much more interesting. Uh, what if the cops had arrived and the lead cop was as Ronnie and his Hitler? <laughs> in his Hitler get up. Don't worry, I'll take care of the situation. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's uh, yeah, yes. Authority has arrived. The ending that got released is, I mean, again, Todd, you should you should say whether you agree, but pretty standard Bollywood. Police are always showing up at the end of movies like that, and everybody stands in a line yeah. while the bad guys in handcuffs. <laughs> right. I was also really glad that you had me read this book about the making of Shole, just because. I wasn't really sure if a lot of the stunts were being supervised when I saw it originally, because some of those falls that the horses take, oh yeah, I was just like, oh my God, there's a lot of dead horses because of this movie. Though reading that book looks like they might have had some supervision to some of the stunts. So I'm really hoping, I don't think that no animals harmed, but I believe that maybe fewer of them were harmed. Yeah. I think that's the best you can hope for usually. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they had a equivalent of the humane society in India at that time. It's clear from that book that the Sholay crew bribed whoever they needed to, to get their movie made the way they wanted it to. And so even if there had been, I'm not sure 
that they would have um, had yeah. power. If, yeah, all. if it had been more time efficient to kill a horse, they probably would have done it. That's kind of like I feel like about Hong Kong movies where you see a snake or a or uh, you know a rabbit get killed. It's like, and is that real? Well, if it was cheaper to kill a real snake, it was real. And I think that can be said of Bollywood at that time, too. So let's go ahead and take a break and play a few messages from our sponsors, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about Sholay. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts go check out adamandeve.com today select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code booth that's b-o-o-t-h at adamandeve.com Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count Podcast. Okay, what about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? Ah, uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Ittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count Podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks? Joel M. Reed. Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. Every week in Iris discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie, to name just a few. And every now and then, we get to speak with the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, Iris, he's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh-uh. no. I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was gonna have, you. It was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. Come in. Please leave your eyes at the door. You will not need them. This is Lord Bloodraw's nerve-wracking auditorium. 
Ah, uh, yes, my lords and ladies, Lord Bloodraw's nerve-wracking auditorium, the weekly podcast presenting the best <laughs> in old-time radio horror and science fiction. Hear chilling tales from such classic series as Lights Out, Suspense, X-1, The Witch's Tale, and many, many more. You can find us at DrunkenZombie.com or on iTunes under the Drunken Zombie Podcasting Network. Lord Bloodraw's nerve-wracking auditorium, where fear enters through the ear. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. We're back and we're talking about Cholet. And the thing that, again, going back to the book that you had recommended, I knew that Cholet was a big deal, but I didn't realize just how big of a deal it was. You can't hyperbolize what a big deal Cholet is in Indian popular culture. I was trying to just to like kind of convey this to the audience and everything, like, you know. Uh, our language here in the West is peppered with Shakespearean phrases, biblical phrases, and I was trying to think of other movies that have entered into our popular culture as much, and the only other one that I could think of was something from 1977, which is Star Wars, and just you know, people that I've talked to who hadn't seen Star Wars, which I know is kind of a crazy idea, but people who hadn't seen the film, when they finally go back and they see Star Wars, they're like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. Because I hear people say, right. the Force is strong with this one, or these, you know, all these different phrases that have entered into pop culture. And it sounds like Sholay in India had very much the same thing, where you can quote a line and people just get it. It's almost like a Seinfeldism, you know, but even more pervasive. I'm, I might be completely wrong about this, but one of the things was that they, it was Gabar Singh's dialogue in particular became the 70s equivalent of a meme. And you could, they actually released albums that was just his dialogue and kids would memorize it and say the dialogues to each other. And that to me sort of reminds me of, you know, how kids in the 90s, uh, memorized Al Pacino's dialogue from Scarface, you know, and that was like kind of <laughs> to be to be gangsta. I think it was a way of being Gavar Singh became sort of the, you know, the model badass and everybody wanted to be bad like Gavar Singh. I was so surprised when I was out on YouTube and looking for clips from the movie, looking for that censored ending, looking for a trailer for the film, all these things. And I ran across a biscuit ad with Gabar Singh <laughs> and his henchmen. I love that. 
I was I, at first I was just like, wow, how did they do these special effects? These are pretty amazing. And there's no way that that was that had to have been like a contemporary ad, right? Yeah, they went and filmed it. I think she in the book she says well, a couple months later or a couple weeks later, and the costumes are actually on loan from the sippies and all that stuff. <laughs> that is crazy because I was looking at it like thinking like, oh okay, well this is like one of those Snickers commercials with Danny Trejo where they just you know CG'd in you know in two thousand and fifteen or something they they took this old movie and made these characters holding like biscuits and stuff. And as I'm watching, I'm like, there's no fucking yeah, way no. <laughs> this is original <laughs> stuff. That's yeah, contemporary. <laughs> and I loved him shooting the gun and shooting the biscuit into pieces. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I hadn't seen that before. Thank you for that. I really I really enjoyed that. Movies I mean the again this is brought up in the Anutama Anupama Chopra's book, but the movie characters don't hadn't, I think to that point, really advertised things in India. Movie stars most certainly had. <laughs> but movie mm-hmm. characters is a whole I mean, what does that say about you know, um, the reality the film creates and things like that, you know, it's uh, totally different. (coughs) Right, exactly. It's kind of like, you know, having the C-3PO serials or something. And I guess even, I I suppose going back, there are a lot of phrases from Star Wars and culture, but I know I can get my father-in-law just rolling if I do any sort of like quote from Seinfeld. And I think I can do that with almost anybody that I work with too, which I think might even be more universal than star Wars. If I am to say somebody is sponge worthy or something like that, Uh, we all know what that means. Or the Simpsons would be the other one I think for, at least for my social world. I mean, I'm sure I use Simpsons things every day and don't even remember anymore Uh, that I'm doing it. I wanted to ask kind of more of a, a rhetorical question as far as who are we Three white people to talk about these Bollywood films, for God's sakes. You mentioned you got some heat on YouTube. Is that what happened? Yeah, it was really weird. So I I was looking, I went to look at a version of the film the other day, and it said that uh, it's a Cholet, blah, 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 English subtitles. So I just was watching this and, and I was like, well, there's no English subtitles at all. And there was no CC button on the YouTube player or anything. So I just left a comment and I said, I'm not seeing any English and somebody, and it's not even the guy who posted the video guy or gal, I don't know. Some random person was just like, well, don't, don't watch the movie. And I was like, well, but I want to see the movie. Well, then learn how to speak Hindi. And I was like, uh, wow. Yeah. And, and we just went back and forth for a while until I came back with the ultimate uh, insult, by the way, which was leave your stupid comments in your pocket. You can't top that one. Yeah, I just found it interesting that it was just like, okay, do I not have a right to see any movie in the world? Right. And- yeah, you can only watch movies about white people with white people problems. I guess so, which is yeah. good because this year's Oscars, I'm right there for all these. Right, movies. exactly. It's like, that's me. That's me. Um, <laughs> I recognize myself in all of these characters. Like that, yeah, Aziz Azari <laughs> does that bit where he goes, this, it must be great for white people because, you know, we just see every once in a while, oh, monsoon wedding, that's me. You know, you guys are like, The Godfather, that's me. Terminator, that's me. Chinatown, that's me. Beth, you've got some comments like that, too. And, yeah, here and there. Uh, Not many, really. I was, with my book, I was really anticipating it, and uh, I've been really happy with the response I've got from people in the South Asian community. Every 
personal appearance I've done. There have been a lot of people from the local uh, Indian community there, and they're like really into it. I mean, some of them, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm being tested a little bit, you know, but... You know, I think with me, I make it plain that I'm dealing with, with these films from an outsider's perspective. I don't pretend to be the last word on the subject. If uh, someone in India wanted to write a book about these films, I would definitely buy it and I would definitely read it. I got comments like to the effect that when they heard about pe- the book, people were suspicious of it. And But once they read it and they saw that I was treating the films with respect and that I was giving them serious analysis and I wasn't just being dismissive or fetishizing them, then they, then they took it to heart. And they actually, a lot of people were like, thank you for writing this book because no one talks about these particular movies, you know, so it's great. You know, people would say, I grew up with these films and I, I heard all kinds of great stories, you know, about going to see, you know, Cholet in India and going to see, you know, these films. And, and people just love to talk about it, you know. So I had some really great, some really great rap sessions, man, with some of the people at my uh, book signings. I did I think, have one. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think overall that not so much anymore, but for example, when I started blogging about Indian films in 2005, Many, many Indians I encountered were shocked that non-Indians were watching these movies at all. They're used to Indians throughout the world watching them. So it's not like someone in America is watching this. It was that a white person in America or non-Indian person more specifically was watching this. So there was that just kind of, what? (laughs) Yeah. Like, how do you find this? What do you like about it? Just, just puzzlement which was that's, which is always kind of fun to have that conversation that's not true so much anymore obviously with the internet making so many things accessible to people everywhere but yeah. no um, that's still the first question i get from most right. indian people it's like why are you into these <laughs> films you know and then usually it's this wonderful bonding experience where they find out that you also love the things they grew up with and it's almost always a great experience the only bad experience I've had is in a, I did a signing talk at the SF Public Library and the guy who, who hosted it was a Pakistani gentleman who I think he decided he had to defend Indian cinema from me somehow. Like he wouldn't let me talk and he uh, seemed to be afraid of what I might say. And he kept uh, bringing up Indian art film and Satyajit Ray and, (laughs) and like the tradition of romantic films. And I was like, Hey, I'm not against those films just because I wrote a book about, I mean, you work at the library, you know how books work. They have a perspective. My book is about 70s Indian action cinema. That doesn't mean that I'm negating everything that's not Indian action cinema. That's just what I chose to write about. But he just kind of, he, he kind of, every time someone would ask a, ask a question, he'd jump in and answer it a lot of times wrong. And finally, I just walked off the stage and he didn't even notice I'd gone. I so also that think was, that, I mean, Indians, I also think, are pretty, unfortunately, accustomed to non-Indians making fun of their movies, right? I mean, we've all experienced yeah. that, I'm sure, when you say that you are really into Bollywood or you want to watch them, people are like, oh, why? They're so long and they have songs. Oh, my right. God. So such a boring comment. But also, that's what they, at least until fairly recently, I think, tended to get from foreigners. So I can yes. see why they're kind of defensive when someone says, 
there's no English on this. Never mind that the film was advertised on YouTube as having English on it. Like that's the that's right. the point. <laughs> right. But you know that they they're understandably defensive. I think. Yeah, I understand that too, and because there is a lot of film writing on the internet that, or there has been. I think this is getting better too. But there's like a lot of film writing is kind of chauvinistic especially from Westerners who think any non-Western country, any non-Western country's attempt at making a genre film is going to be a flawed copy of, right. you know, of the Western original because we invented genre cinema, you know, or whatever. And so there's sort of a dismissiveness, which I definitely don't subscribe to, but um, just that, anything else is an inferior copy of uh, the Western product. And I don't subscribe to that at all, but I would be wary of any white American writing about the topic too. So, you know, but fortunately once people take the plunge and, and read it, and I'm sure with you too, Beth, I mean, you can obviously see that you have a lot of respect and a lot of knowledge. So, the name of your book, Todd, might Im- invite some of that. The uh-huh. whole idea of funky Bollywood, the wild world of 1970s Indian action cinema. Because every once in a while, an Indian film or a clip from an Indian film, I should say, will become like a little meme, a little popular video to show. Like, you know, some of the ones like the the little kid who is like breakdancing. Yeah, a little superstar. Yeah. Yes, um, yes. Well, I got it. I, okay. All right. Full disclosure. Sometimes it's hard to resist making fun of certain Bollywood movies, just like it's hard to resist making fun of certain Hollywood movies. You know, there are some really, there's some really over the top weird stuff, you know, but I think it's usually with affection. It's like, it's sort of, you know, if you're someone who watches a lot of Bollywood films, you get to, you have this sort of affectionate familiarity with like d- different stars, little quirks, and different directors, little quirks, and just kind of the weird directions things can go. You know, so I'm not going to say I haven't had a laugh at Bollywood's expense, but generally it comes from you know, context is important. I think that's the main thing. I think a lot of people who just go, oh, yeah, they have songs and they're long. I I think if they had a little more context, which is what I, you know, one of the purposes of my book, they might be able to get into it a little more. You know, not that they have to, but, you know. Well, I will admit that I am a fan of the unusual, you know, so things like, you know, Pete Toombs' Mondo Macabro book and some of these, you know, books about like, um, you know, uh, Yakuza films and stuff. It's like, show me the weirdest ones. I want to know what the strangest ones are. Like when it comes to spaghetti westerns, like I love Metallo, you know, it's such a strange film and stuff. Or like Django Shoot, If You Live, Kill, like these ones that are on the fringes. And those are the ones that to me are the really exciting ones because the, you know, you can show me, a, you know, a hundred spaghetti Westerns and they're all going to start to look the same after right. a while or whatever, you know, just there's a lot of similar things that are going on. But when you show me those ones, ones that really hit all the notes or the ones that are just so off, I'm really excited by that kind of stuff. You know, give, Give me the weirdest black exploitation ones. Give me the strangest women in prison films. Any of those, any genre that you, when you start to get outside of those lines and things start to get fuzzy. And that's one of the things I like a lot about Bollywood films is that masala aspect you're talking about 
where you can mix all of these things, sometimes more successfully than others. And when it comes to like some of the strange things like, oh yeah, like here's this guy and he's going to punch a cow and it's going to go 150 feet in the air or whatever, you know, like weird stuff like that is like, yeah, yeah, let's see this. Let, let give me, give me those movies. Those are the ones I really want to sink my teeth into. And then Beth, your blog, Beth loves Bollywood. You've been doing that. What? It's 2005. You said, yeah, 10 years. That's kind of crazy. Wow. <laughs> it's totally crazy. <laughs> and how do you decide what films that you're going to cover when it comes to the blog? So that's changed over the years as I've learned more, but I, for a while I operated a lot with what could I get my hands on and then, you know, recommendations. And now I, I don't know, I'm just, you know, Todd writes about something and I think, oh my God, I have to see that. Or, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's a mix, me nosing around and, you know, that, that column on the right on YouTube has led to so many great (laughs) discoveries. You never know what's going to come up. Reading for this podcast, I actually just read about an Indian disco Western. Ooh. Which, of wow. course, stars Mithun Chakraborty, Mithun Chakraborty. Disco. Um, and I, I've already found a link to that because I'm watching that as soon as humanly possible. You know. <laughs> Please share. I will. <laughs> Thanks. It's called Wanted, Dead or Alive. And, of course, the soundtrack is by Bobby. So. You know, I talked a lot about the influences on Sholay, but there are, you know, other than how pervasive it became in popular culture, there were a lot of influences of Sholay, like on different films. You know, I've seen, um, you know, China Gate, and uh, before I saw Sholay, and so I'm just like, oh, okay, was that more of a Seven Samurai kind of thing, or was that more of a nod to Sholay? That can be left up for debate, but it's definitely had its influences on other things. I wanted to ask you guys, have either one of you seen the remake that was, what, 2007, I want to say? Yeah. Nobody watches that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard too many references to it being completely execrable to even go near it. I, Did you uh, watch it? Well, Beth? I was going to because it just coincidentally I had noticed in the last few months that it was on – like Netflix Instant or Google Play or something because I, I noticed wow. it and I thought, oh, someone got suckered into paying to to license, uh, you know, Ramgo Valvarmaki, yeah. ag, ag. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. someone at Netflix is going to roll. <laughs> oh, that's um, right. It's called gone. ag. It was, it was gone by the time I went to try to watch it for this movie <laughs> or for this podcast, excuse me. Um, so wow. I, I settled for some of the songs. And, ev- you know, usually with a mainstream Hindi film, you can – there's something in the songs to enjoy. No, not even the songs. They're, oh, they're, cool. I mean, that is not, 2007 is not really the best era of <laughs> movies for me personally, but it's really bad. And I can understand. I mean, I think I've read that Amitabh Bachchan always wanted a chance to play Gabbar. I'm sorry it went this way. It was just phenomenally unsuccessful and hated. And I do, I mean, I'm not going to argue that it was good. I haven't even seen it, but I can easily imagine it was not good. But what were you thinking making this movie? There was no way to win making this movie. So why did you do it? Isn't there one of those, uh, there's like one of those spoof movies, duplicate Cholet. Isn't there one of those too? And there's our friend Harinam Singh, who does Shaitani Dracula, for example. He's got a horror film that has you know, a track in it that's sort of a riff on Cholet. It appears, mm. I would reckon it appears as, as comedy track more than anything else. But yeah, they, or you can, you know, the way to shorthand a bad villain is to call him Gabar or Jabar or some version right. thereof, you know. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, one thing I would say that Sholay had a big influence on future uh, Indian films is in casting. I mean, a lot yes. of the people that it ended up being typecast, you know, probably the most uh, salient example being Amjad Khan, who played villains. And, uh, you know, I, people have taken me to task for this because I guess he did some work in art cinema, too. But as far as commercial cinema, I've rarely seen him play anything but a villain. He you know. and he unfortunately died fairly young, so it's kind of hard to know what else he might have he might right. have done. But he, yeah, he definitely plays a fair amount of villains. Yeah, and he is a very unique villain too, because he. Oh yeah, yeah. Because when you look at the other, like Ajit and uh, Madan Puri, they played more of a, a like sort of a sophisticated. Yeah, they're much you know, more urban and urbane. Urbane, yeah, and, and, and not like that at all. And he, there's something animal about Amjad Khan. You yeah. know, there's something feral about him, which, you know, I like that about him. One thing that doesn't translate to somebody that doesn't speak the language. Apparently, the way he speaks has some sort of way to telegraph his badness. Is that true? What I catch, not a Hindi speaker, obviously, but um, <laughs> what I catch with him is that he kind of lisps. And he, there are some consonants that he changes. And I don't know if that's supposed to denote a regional accent because there's, you know, what, half a million native speakers of Hindi in, Eng in India or something, some huge number yeah. like that. And so they don't all speak it the same way, obviously. So I don't know if that's supposed to show he's a certain kind of from a place, from a class, uneducated. I don't know. But he, I mean, to me, it's more the way he pauses he makes in his dialogues yes. are so menacing and strange and he'll, yes. he'll cock his head to the side. That's what I notice more than the actual structure yeah. of sentences. Because when it, um, yeah. I mean, I, I know enough to pick up some of his sentences wholly in Hindi, but um, to my untrained ears, that's what I notice. You should yeah. definitely get a Hindi speaker on that. Mm. But uh, I think I once, I, I said of him, because he does a lot of going from soft speaking very soft and in this sort of mock solicitous tone yeah. to just exploding. And it's sort of like the dialogue equivalent of a pixie song is how it came <laughs> to it, you know, loud, quiet, loud, dynamic. And it's really, yeah. And the way he uses silence and pauses is, is very artful. I think he's, he's a great a, actor. He's got a theater background. And I think, I think you yes. can see it in this, in this film particularly. Yeah. And this he, was, like many, many other Bollywood stars, does not always get as much of a chance to use some of those things as you wish that he did. Partly yeah. because of being typecast and partly just because pop culture, you know, or I should say mass mass entertainment filmmaking may or may not be very careful with certain things. And there are a lot of people yeah. who end up being, I think, pretty criminally underused. So let's go ahead and take one more break and play a preview for next week's show. Everybody knows that the days are loaded Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed you Think about it, everything's polluted The environment, the government, the schools, you name it We were on uh, 92 FM tonight It feels like a nice clean little band No one else is using it, and the price is right Oh, are you listening to this? Yeah, of course I'm listening. There's nothing to do anymore. And all the great themes have been used up, turned into theme parks. So I don't really find it exactly cheerful to be living in a totally, like, exhausted decade where there's nothing to look forward to and no one to look up to. 
He's got a pirate radio station. Nobody knows who he is. I, I could be that anonymous nerd sitting across from you and when you turn around and he just looks away he never looks back at you again this is a song for the 90s welcome to Darina Central may I take your order please yeah I want that was deep I like the idea that a voice can just go somewhere uninvited like a Dirty thought and a nice clean mind. I know you. Not your name, but your game. Come to me, or I'll come to you. So you are him. Would I give for a kiss? Do you care where your parents are? This radio person is the whole problem. Are we going to allow this guy to be heard by anyone who can turn a dial? I'm in jail! I'm going to stay here! I like it here! <laughs> and he's trying to tell you that there's something wrong with this school. You're not hey, supposed you, to be What do you want to slam me? Come on, Bill, I'm a big fan of you. Get off the bus. Get out of control. Why not do something crazy? It makes a hell of a lot more sense than blowing your brains out. FCC, you know what that means? This phone call has been traced. This is my life you're screwing around with here, you know? Not anymore, it isn't. This is everyone's life. Mark, you can't leave it like this. You out there? You listening? That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Alan Moyle's Pump Up the Volume with Rob St. Mary. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-hosts, Beth Watkins and Todd Statham. Todd, tell me more about funky Bollywood, the wild world of the 1970s Indian action cinema. That is quite a mouthful. What made you decide to write the book? I decided to write it when I was thinking about how there there wasn't really anyone other than me and Keith Allison of Teleport City who were writing about Indian cinema from sort of a cult cinema perspective. And also, and Keith had said something once that I think he'd written that, you know, when you look for literature in English on Bollywood cinema, a lot of it's purely academic and then what isn't academic is just kind of frothy, like you look at the pretty colors and stuff. So I wanted to write something that was right down the middle, something that was fun. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm so passionate about these movies and I just wanted to introduce other people to their pleasures. And I thought the action movies of, of the seventies were a good entryway because there's a lot of elements that you know, everybody can relate to. Everybody likes movies about spies and detectives and, you know, bad guys versus good guys with car chases and fist fights. So I thought that would be a good entryway. Uh, so that's basically why I wrote it. Uh, it took me a while. Fits, you know, there are fits and starts. When it came to what films you included, was there like a funkiness factor that you uh, had to consider? <laughs> well, I did limit it to <laughs> I did limit it to urban crime thrillers because there were a lot of other films that could fit under the action umbrella, like the the Daku genre, genre, which is basically 
films about rural bandits like Gobber Singh and stuff like that. So there were so many of those, and I really wanted to focus more on the urban set thrillers. So that was part of it. And then availability played a big role. You know, there had to be a subtitled DVD available of it. That was about it. I mean, there were a few, and then there were some films that I, you know, I got, which didn't ended up not really fitting in to the, to the concepts. Um, you know, I ended up with 70 films that I reviewed, which I think gives a pretty good overview. And I, of course, included all my favorites and some stinkers for balance. But, uh, yeah, a lot of it was, was availability. And fortunately, there were a lot of old, Indian films available on DVD and VCD. You know, that's one of the great things about being a fan of these movies is so many of them are accessible. Where is the best place for you and for you too, Beth? Where do you guys tend to get your movies at? I buy most of my movies through Induna.com. They're located in India. And if you order, they're great. They're very reliable. I don't mean to sound like an advertisement, but... The shipping is pretty dear, but the cost per DVD is very, very low. So if you just order a whole bunch of movies and spread the <laughs> shipping costs out, that's why I, you know, yeah. while I was writing the book, I ordered at one point fifty movies from them. <laughs> it I was would, pretty. I would uh, that recommendation. They are fantastic. But if you live in a city with any kind of Indian population, you can often rent the movies from your Indian grocery store. Um, yeah. Or you can go, there are DVD shops like the, I'm, I'm pretty close to Chicago, so I go to the Chicago Indian neighborhood fairly often and often pick over um, whatever's in the stores. And I was curious, you know, Sholay was fantastic, just really blew my socks off. Are there other films that you guys can recommend to me that, you know, what's, what's my next step here when it comes to this stuff? And, you know, like I said, I tend to enjoy the unusual, you know, I have watched a lot of Bollywood films for the projection booth. It tends to be like, what's the Bollywood version of this? Like when we did the entity, I watched the Bollywood version of the entity, which also kind of mixed in some poltergeist, those kind of things. So, but what's the next step after Sholay? Where should I go after this? Well, definitely watch Dawn because it's sitting there. Yeah. You need to watch Dawn. That's great. I want to send him to Manmohan Desai Films. Yeah, I Mars want to send you maybe. To um, Dharamvir or. Um, oh, yeah. Amar Akbar and Avarish. Yeah, these are all in Todd's book. It's kind of too bad Todd and I are doing this together because we're going to send you to the same movies. Yeah. I think we're kind of pod people that way. Right. But I mean, anything in Todd's yeah. book, I would. <laughs> I would. I've not seen everything that Todd writes about, but uh, you know, that's a that's a super to watch list right there. So, are you saying that I should just use Funky Bollywood: The Wild World of 1970s Indian Action Cinema as my guidebook for what I should watch next? I am. <laughs> I, I'm saying that too. Stay far away from the 1990s if you can possibly avoid it. That's going to be yeah. another unpopular opinion when this podcast airs, but that's a bad time in Bombay for films. So <laughs> avoid those unless someone specifically says, you might really like this one film, but it's, um, right. I don't know, it's uh, rapey and violent in an ungood Trash. way and trashy. and Yeah. But if you go to the 80s, definitely Disco Dancer, for sure, you yes, should check Disco out. Yes, Disco Dancer. 
And oh, and and gun ma- the Gunmaster G nine. Yes, films. Gunmaster G nine. and Suraksha and Wardot. Those are, I believe, both on YouTube with subtitles. Yeah. If you can catch a a movie with that same actor called Karate, I would recommend that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still haven't found that one. Oh man. Sounds like there's going to be some links exchanged after this recording. Definitely. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Todd, where's the best place for people to pick up Funky Bollywood? Well, you can get it online. You can get it at Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. And I understand some brick-and-mortar Barnes & Noble stores are carrying it. In India, you can get it on Flipkart, apparently. And uh, uh, you can buy it from the Fab Press website. You can get a nice... Uh, signed and numbered copy from them. Uh, most most places quality books are are sold. Uh, I'd say, like you know, it's a real book. <laughs> That's, I have to tell people, to my friends, is it? Uh, it it's like it, it's yeah, it's on Amazon. Yeah, you can go to a bookstore and buy it. Oh, so it's like a real book. Yes, it's a real book. With everything that Fab puts out, it looks beautiful. Yeah, I'm real happy with that. Are there other sites where people can go and kind of keep up with you and your work? Yeah, I have a blog. It's called Die Danger, Die, Die, Kill. People tend to call it 40K. It's uh, Die Danger, Die, Die, Kill dot blogspot dot com. And I write about I write about a lot more than Bollywood movies. I write about all kinds of world genre cinema, Turkish films, Thai films. Egyptian films I write about a lot. So, uh, yeah, check it out, man. How about you, Beth? Where can people go to keep up with you? Uh, my blog is BethLovesBollywood.com, and I'm an avid Twitter person, so you can get me at BethLovesBolly there. Well, thank you both for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please stop on by the website, Projection-Booth.com, to leave us some feedback. Link on over to our iTunes page to rate and review the show. That really helps get the word out. Or donate to the show via our Patreon. Those are just a few ways that you can help us take over the world.
मेरी जीत तेरी जीत तेरी हार मेरी हार सुन है मेरे यार तेरा गम मेरा गम मेरी जान तेरी जान ऐसा अपना प्यार जान पे भी खेलेंगे तेरे लिए ले लेंगे जान पे भी खेलेंगे तेरे लिए ले लेंगे सबसे दुश्मनी ये दोस्ती हम नहीं तोड़ेंगे तोड़ेंगे तमगर तेरा साथ ना छोड़ेंगे Thank you. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.